So we have been looking at the seven churches in the book of Revelation, as you are well aware of. And, and this message, we come to the seventh, we come to the final church. And it's Revelation chapter 3, it's the, the church of Laodicea. This is the kind of church that makes Jesus sick. Now, how can I say it makes Jesus sick? Because Jesus himself says, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. That implies this church makes Jesus sick, right? So let's get a recap book of Revelation. It's the only book in the Bible that has its own divine outline. Chapter 1, verse 19 gives us the outline of the book of Revelation. Chapter 1, verse 19, John is told from the Lord, write the things which you have seen. That would be the past. We find the past in chapter 1. And the things which are, that would be the present, chapters 2 and 3. And the things which will take place after this. That'd be chapters 4, all the way through to the end of the book of Revelation. So we're here. We're in the last section of the seven churches of the book of Revelation. We are in the section of the present, the things which are. We're going to pick up from this spot next Sunday night. We are in chapter 4. We move into the future next Sunday night. Guess what? We're getting raptured next Sunday night. Wouldn't that be great if we really got raptured? I think that would be outstanding if we really got raptured uh, by next Sunday night. Yeah, praise the Lord would be right. But then from chapter 4, verse 1, starting next week, it's everything that is coming. What is coming when people think of the book of Revelation? They think what is coming, not of what is happening now. So we finish what is happening now, and then from here on out, it is going to be the future. So as we look at the church that makes Jesus sick, we come to the seventh church, and it is literally the sickening church. Chapter 3, Revelation, verse 14. And to the angel of the church of Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, the faithful, the true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Who is this speaking of? This is the Lord Jesus Christ speaking of Himself. Verse 15, I know your works, to the church of Laodicea, that you are neither hot nor cold. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold or hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Yuck. Because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. And you do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich. And white garments, that you may be clothed. That the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. And anoint your eyes with the eye salve, that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. But Jesus doesn't pull any punches here. He gets straight to the point, and he lets us know we get a real good idea of how he feels about this church. It is the lukewarm church, it's the foolish church, it's the self-complacent church, it's the materialistic church, it is the wretched church. How do we all how do we know all of this? Because of what we just read and how we're able to define everything that we just read. So let's look up here some questions. The first question for tonight is this. Why did the people at this church, the church of Laodicea, think that they were a superior church? They're kind of people that kind of had, oh, we're up here, you're down there. Uh, those kind of people, but the whole church was that way. Kind of annoying. 
But why? Well, they had a rich spiritual heritage. They had big-time speakers. John had been a speaker at this church, the Apostle John. Paul knew of them and wrote a letter to them. Colossians chapter 4, verse 16 teaches us that. Paul prayed earnestly for them. Colossians chapter 2, verse 1. Paul wanted to visit there. Colossians chapter 2, verse 1. And Paul probably did visit there at some point. So they have this rich spiritual heritage. They were living in the past. It's like a church that has a leader that really brought about a great movement. Um, I, I don't want to say this in a, in a bad way, but if I were to look at Calvary chapels and, or, or, or a boasting way, I've got to be careful of either of it. Uh, Pastor Chuck was the founder of Calvary chapels. You have the Jesus movement from back in the late 60s and early 70s as Pastor Chuck was a huge part of what God was doing at that time. Pastor Chuck has passed away. Passed away four or five years ago. And since then, um, the fear is with a lot of the Calvaries just branching off and some of them becoming, we're, uh, we're living in the past because of the past rich spiritual heritage, but not pressing forward with the same rich spiritual truth. And uh, quite frankly, there's, there's challenges in, in the movement. I don't know how else to tell you, but there is. This church also had money and prestige, and we will see how that worked out in just a few minutes. And then number three, they were smugly satisfied. We know from what Jesus said that they viewed themselves with smug satisfaction. This letter must have been somewhat of a jolting wake-up call. Jesus not only calls for their immediate repentance, but they, they repent with zealousness in verse 19. That conveys uh, an urgent matter, and zealous is an excellent translation here. It implies repentance done ardently and with passion. The way that the Assyrians repented when Jonah was spewed out of the fish and said, repent or else you're dead. This is what the Lord said. You guys need to be like the Assyrians were in the days of Jonah. And you better do it now because your end is here. This church was in deep trouble. Our bodies, you need to understand what Jesus is saying here about this church. Our bodies vomit as a way to remove toxins from the body. This church is a toxin to the body of Christ and in the body of Christ. And they sicken Jesus to the point where he says, I will vomit you out of myself. And then he defines all of the reasons why we can know that something is wrong with this church. Number two, second question. How did they come to such a state? In the, in the interest of time going through the seven churches... We haven't examined the histories and the geographies, the economies, or the cultures of the various cities of the seven churches and where they were located. But with Laodicea, it is worth doing an observation of the city itself to help us understand how the church ended up like it did. It was wealthy. It was situated on the Lycus River, a major trade route. It was self-satisfied. We know from the city's ruins that the, its inhabitants had a taste for Greek art and, and, finer, and the finer things. It was beautiful. We see in the ruins beautiful monuments. It was religious. The city mined its own coins. 
Inscriptions show their worship of Greek gods and of the Roman emperor, and they also had a large Jewish population. So it's kind of like an all-religious things go. They actually mined their own coins, stamped their Greek gods, stamped their Roman gods, and they were Jewish, stamped whatever Jewish things they needed to also. Remember, the early church was Jewish. So we get all this flavor going on. They were learned. Their schools indicate high levels of science and learning, and they were self-reliant. So it gives us an idea of the city. But there was also an earthquake there. In 60 AD, a major earthquake destroyed Laodicea and nearby towns. Rome offered help in rebuilding. Uh, the other towns accepted, but the Laodiceans did not accept the help from the Romans. The Laodiceans uh, seemed to think that they either didn't need Rome's help or or whatever it was, we are going to do it ourselves because we're tough. Now think of it with the United States of America. When something goes wrong, that's serious. A big earthquake, a big hurricane, the federal government steps in, right? That's why you have the United States, and we hear reports California wants to break off from being part of the country, which to me is just kind of nuts, but, you know, I live here, um, and so do you. <laughs> Not everybody out there, they're probably thinking... Praise the Lord. <laughs> but anyways, that's another story. So, but the federal government will, st- will step in, and then you have FEMA enacted and so forth. It could be that Laodicea said, well, we don't want Rome coming to help us, because then there's going to be strings attached, and we don't want to do it. We see how the government attaches strings to everything. You'll give you a hundred bucks, but this is what you've got to do for us, right? So anyways, we don't know why Laodicea said we don't want your help in rebuilding of the earth after the earthquake. Uh, but they didn't take Rome's help. In any case, they rebuilt their city. They made it even more beautiful than, than it was before. And they were proud of themselves. And they were proud of their accomplishments. So they're really, yes. And we've got the most awesome church in the world. The whole thing, right? they got it all. So you got the city, you got the earthquake. And you also have the culture and the church. And this is when things go wrong. We know from 2,000 years of church history that... Churches influence culture, and church and, and culture also influences churches. Uh, an example of church influencing or culture influencing church would be pagan Roman society. Think of this: had local gods who served as protectors of various communities. Got that? Okay, that's the culture. They're pagan gods, protector of the city. The Catholic Church kept them but renamed them as saints. I went to Catholic school. I went to Catholic church. I was an altar boy. I remember all of the turning to the saints and and the different things that that we did. I remember marching around the playground in Catholic school. And we did this. It was a a worship of Mary this one particular time. And we held up these things and we sang Ave Maria. and, And we did it like once a year. And, uh, and the, the things that would go on with the saints. And I, I think a lot of Catholics don't know about, about a lot of these things. But you read that and you go, okay, that's how culture influences uh, church. That's just one example. But we can see it throughout history. We see it now, which we'll get to in a minute. But also churches do at times influence the culture too, which can be a good thing if it's a, a good church. An example would be prisons used to be, used to be called penitentiaries because they hoped criminals would use their time incarcerated to repent 
or do their penance. That idea of repenting and doing penance came from the teachings of the church that come from the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the church affected culture in an example like, uh, like that. But we're going to see, as I mentioned in a minute, how it really starts to work out when the culture infects the church. Listen, I, I, I would ask you to pray for me and pray for the staff here and, and pray for each other here because we want to be able to affect the culture of the valley for as much good as we can, right? I mean, you do, don't you? And wherever you live, you want to affect California as much as we possibly could. Um, but the country and the world, we have those opportunities because of the internet and so forth. But there is so much pressure to just conform to the way that the world thinks, to conform to culture, and do church according to culture. We can't do that. Listen, I, I get being contemporary with worship. And, and, and I understand that methods can change, but the message can never change. And the lyrics in the worship are more, much more important than the style. The style doesn't really matter. You have a hundred different people in a room, you're going to have a hundred different people that like different kinds of style. The lyrics matter. And the, the book matters. The message must still be the truth. But there's so much pressure to just conform because you know if you conform... You wouldn't have this fight with the enemy anymore, and the lion wouldn't be seeking to devour you anymore. The, the lion of the Satan, that lion. And number three, well, how is it supposed to be? Think of this, God's word doesn't change, God's standards of right and wrong do not change, but human standards of right and wrong change with locations and with times. Uh, speaking of sexual immorality and perversions that have coming to the church. There's a very well-known pastor who said not too long ago that God lives in the 21st century. And so what he was saying is, no, God is good with the sexual immorality within the church and some of the perverse things going, and we need to ordain these types of things. And they're all good because God needs to change, God needs to conform to us. So this, but, but you've heard it, right? You have heard these things going on within churches. And let me tell you, I, I see more of that going on in churches than, than I do of truth. People need to know the truth. I look at young people today, and they're lied to by Hollywood. They're lied to by politicians. They're lied to by just about everybody. And unfortunately, they want, will the church just tell me the truth? And when the church is telling them the same lies, that's, to me, that's the worst breach of all is that the church would lie, that the pastor wouldn't give the truth. You, listen, I expect people in Hollywood to not think this way. I, I don't even expect politicians to think this way. I wish they would. I wish Hollywood would, but I don't expect them to. But in the pulpit, a, a church, and, and that's why I believe judgment begins with the house of God, because it's the most appalling thing. It would be that a pastor wouldn't be delivering the truth of God's Word. But other than general admonitions toward modesty, uh, the Bible gives a, a lot of leeway in areas of fashion, such as hairstyle, clothes, music, architecture, and on down the list. Those things are all fluid. But the really important stuff is unchanging, such as right and wrong. Who is God? What is sin? What is truth? These things come from God's revealed Word. Biblical concepts should flow 
from the church to the society, but often it's the anti-biblical biblical concepts that flow from society, flow from culture into the church. Listen, to stay on track, both as a church and as an individual Christian, you know what you need to be? The moment you ask Christ to come into your life, the Holy Spirit dwells inside of you. But Ephesians tells us that we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. The verb is present tense, so this is saying, keep on being filled. I wake up in the morning, i got to pray, Lord, fill me with your Spirit. I know the Holy Spirit dwells in me, but I know what Ephesians says. I need to keep on being filled. I get My gas runs out. The, the spiritual things. I, I need that. I need that strength. I, I need His power. I want the dunamis power. Listen, we are moving forward. And there is a world of people out there that need to hear the truth of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That He came and died for their sins the first time. And man, He's coming again. And I believe He's coming again soon. And we need to be aware. So I, I, need, to be, I need to be gassed up. I don't know how else to put it. But with this verse from Ephesians, you better believe it. Be filled with the Spirit or keep on being filled. Now, now let me illustrate this for you with the, the, the subject of context. I talked a little bit about context this morning, but this helps us to understand where Laodicea went wrong. If you are here this morning, you heard a little bit. If you weren't, that's all right. Even if you were here this morning, you're here a lot more right now anyways. So there. Think of this, a woman was talking to her husband one day and she said something about Islam. Her statement was not derogatory, but her 10-year-old thought it might be. She just mentioned Islam. So her 10-year-old daughter said angrily, why can't you just leave those people alone? Uh, the parents are dumbfounded. When did their daughter become such a passionate advocate for Islam? Uh, the answer is that it comes as at the child from almost everywhere. It happens at school. It happens with their friends. And when she was being entertained with music, video games, television, and online. Context determines our interpretation of what we see. And then we respond or react according to our interpretation. So culture gives us a context. Let me illustrate it another way. Gardner Harris of the New York Times writes, With tasteless yellow coloring. Listen to this. It's added to vanilla pudding. So tasteless coloring. Just coloring. Added to vanilla pudding. So it's still vanilla pudding, but now it's yellow. Right? But it's still vanilla. Right? With tasteless yellow coloring, it's added to vanilla pudding. Consumers say it tastes like banana or lemon pudding. Because they see it. Right? The advertiser gives you a context. Right? And this article stated... When mango or lemon flavoring, so now you have the flavoring, but not the color, right? When mango or lemon flavoring is added to white pudding, most consumers say that it tastes like vanilla pudding because it has no color, although it's actually mango or lemon, but it looks vanilla. Orange Cheetos without the orange. are gross. Listen, well, you heard that this morning. I guess you who are laughing, right? Listen, it's cheese puffs I really like. Cheese puffs, in case you're going to buy me a thousand bags. No, no, seriously. So, you got that, right? So, the, the, the Cheetos or the cheese puffs 
without that orange coloring. And, and it's a gross kind of color. It's like, oh. And you take to taste it, it's you, it's the context. It's all about the context. Well, one more oh, one more illustration for you on this, right? In 1972, in a 1972 interview with Dick Cavett, film director Alfred Hitchcock described two film sequences. In one, we see the close-up of, an, uh, of a, a man gazing out his apartment window. The filmmaker cuts to a shot of a woman with her baby and then back to the man who smiles. So what have you demonstrated, Hitchcock said, that he's a nice, benevolent gentleman, right? So you got that. It cuts away to a woman with a child. You cut back to the man out the window. He's a nice, benevolent man, right? Then, now, Alfred Hitchcock said, take the middle piece of the film away, and the man looking out the window, he looks, he sees, now cut to a girl in a bikini. And he smiles, and now he's a dirty old man. Interesting, isn't it? If the context is developed and sold, Dick Cavett said, and it's the, the exact same smile on the man looking out the window. Hitchcock said it's the exact same smile, the exact same look. It's the same smile on the man's face because it was the exact same piece of the film. But they just put in a different thing to help you think differently. Film scholars call it the Kuleshev uh, effect. The audience interprets the same film clip in a different way based on different contexts. So now we relate this to the world in which we live and we see what happened to uh, Laodicea. A few years ago, the New York Times reported the average young American now spends practically every waking minute except for the time in school using a smartphone, computer, television, or other electronic device. Likewise, the consumer research firm Yankolovich estimated that the average city dweller sees or hears around 5,000 advertising messages a day. So advertisers, educators, and entertainers provide the context through which people see the world. Context has everything to do with our interpretation. And then once we interpret it, we respond accordingly. Context has everything to do with it, and it can fool us. Without, listen, without the positive flow of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God to wash your mind and keep you on the narrow path, guess which way you're going to go as a Christian? Guess which way you're going to go as a pastor? Guess which way you're going to go as a church? So it's no surprise when we look at churches in America and in Europe, in the Western world now, we have a context of culture that is really perverted. You have pastors that go to seminary and they're told they can't trust the Word of God, so they go to other philosophers who tell them other things, and then they bring that kind of stuff into the pulpit. And there are a lot of churches out there that teach, know that there's many roads that lead to heaven. I'm talking about Christian Churches that are Christian in name. That Jesus is not the only way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father, but by no, that's not really true. Every, all roads lead to heaven, and they will also tell you, no, Jesus is not coming again. The book of Revelation is just a book of signs and symbols. 
is poetic. It really means nothing. Right? So this is the context, and this is where Laodicea was. So next question, let's move on. What happened to the church at Laodicea? The ter- church took on the image of the culture that surrounded it. It can happen to any church, and it requires constant uh, understanding, constant um, attention. Romans chapter 12, verse 2, Paul wrote, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. When Jesus prays, some of the churches, the praise is almost always related to them doing things that are opposite of the culture. Uh, the church of Smyrna and Philadelphia, they did things opposite the culture. Jesus praised them. You come to a church like Laodicea, Jesus rebukes them. You went along with the way that culture was. Next question, number five. What is the predicament of these people at Laodicea? Look at verse 17 again. Because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, you do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Wow. They have been caught in a wealth trap. I'm rich. I have need of nothing. It's a wealth trap. Now here's the deal. Jesus doesn't condemn money anywhere in the Bible, nor does he condemn someone for being rich. In fact, the Bible is clear. God blesses some people with riches. Abraham was rich. David was rich. Solomon was super rich. He's like Jeff Bezos of Amazon today. Solomon was super rich. And today there are rich people that live for the Lord, that love the Lord, and they use their money to be able to bless the ministry of the Lord. That's what they do. And God raises up people like that and He blesses them to be able to give. Ministry costs money. God knows that. You're in this world, so He does that, right? But here's the problem. The problem in Laodicea is not that they had riches, but the riches had them. That's the problem. Someone wrote in a book I was reading, he said, uh, I've not, I haven't seen many people possessed by demons, but I have seen them possessed by their riches. That would describe Laodicea. You say you're rich, you don't need nothing. You got it all going on. They've been so indoctrinated into the world system that they have begun to judge themselves according to the world's standards. But Christ sees them exactly in exactly the opposite light. Rich, wealthy, and smug, self-made, radical individualists. No, Jesus says they are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. These people in this church only look good on the outside. Inside, they don't even know God. They have everyone fooled except for God and the person with spiritual discernment. So they say, again, verse 17, I'm rich. I've become wealthy. I have need of nothing. No, you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Verse 18, I counsel you to buy from me gold from the Lord. Knows that from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich and white garments that you may be clothed that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. And look at this. And anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. You got gold? Buy for me gold that's been refined. You've been pressed. You've been refined. And now you've got gold stored in heaven. Spiritual gold. You're getting it from me. You got nice clothes? That's wonderful. There's nothing wrong with nice clothes. 
except that your problem is the nice clothes got you. This is what you need to do. You need to be clothed in white clothes, and I'll give you the clothes of righteousness. Because you don't got any righteousness going on in your church. You are not hot, you are not cold, you are lukewarm, I'm going to vomit you out of the mouth. See the way Jesus has taken this church? He goes, this is what you need to do. You need to, look at this, verse 18 again, anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. You got eye cream? You look Instagram good? That's wonderful. I'm glad you look Instagram good. But you ain't getting into heaven with that. You need to be able to see clearly with spiritual eyes and you need to be able to see the truth. Wow. But notice in verse 18, Jesus says, buy from me. So that takes us to the next question. By the way, we only have two more questions. We're going to make it by 6.30. Hallelujah. Maybe. Don't get too happy. Number six. <laughs> Probably. Number six. Why did Jesus tell him to purchase these things? Buy from me gold. Buy from me the white garments. Buy from me the eyes off. Why did he say that? These things are free. When they're in the Lord. Right? His grace grants them all. But he's communicating with the commercially minded Laodiceans. He's using sarcasm to point out the uselessness of their earthly money when it comes to the things of eternal value. In Isaiah chapter 55, he says this, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come by any. You have no money, how are you going to buy? Right? It's the same play on words that he's doing here with Laodicea. You have no money, come buy and eat. Yes, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. How do you buy it without money? How do you buy it without price? Why do you spend money for what is not bread? And your wages for what does not satisfy. Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and let your soul delight itself in your soul delight itself in abundance, not your flesh. Right? He, he, this is the same thing he's telling them here in Laodicea. This is what you need to do. You, you need to understand that um, this is about the spiritual reality and the eternal reality because the place you're going right now. It's a place of judgment. It's a place of hell. It's a place of damnation. You need to turn to me. But these things are, are, are all beyond dying in the traditional sense. Buy for me this. Buy for me that. They're all beyond buying in the traditional sense, but they do require a sort of price. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 tells us, For you are bought at a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. We must acknowledge our need and therefore our unworthiness. We must turn to God and receive these things as His free gifts. I surrender me to you. Buy for me that which costs nothing. I have paid the price. Give me your life. I gave you my life. Give me your life. Last question, number seven. What is the solution? Verse 19. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, look at this. I stand at the door, knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. 
What's the solution? Jesus is the solution. Repent, make a U-turn, and be saved. To repent, you've heard it here a million times on Sunday nights. To repent means make a U-turn. You turn from the way you're going and you surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ. He's talking to a whole church full of people. He's talking to people who claim to know Him. He's talking about people who go to church, give money to the church. And He's saying, you guys, got, you guys don't even know Me. You're full of yourselves. Your religion you think is going to get you to heaven. You do not know me. You need to repent. You need to make a U-turn. Revelation 3, verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Right? Think of this. A door cannot stop the Lord of the universe, but a choice to leave it closed can. He's saying, hey, let me in. I want to come in. I want you to be saved. I want the church to be changed. Will this church let me in? Uh, but when you narrow it down to an individual, will you as, a, as an individual make sure that you let the Lord in? The Lord does not force any person to receive Him. He's a perfect gentleman. He does not overwhelm our choice. He allows us to open the door or choose to leave it closed. He's not going to kick it open. Think of it like this. Depending on your political affiliation, let's say that Donald Trump, Barack Obama, George W. Bush, or Bill Clinton, or whichever you like the best, called you up one day and said, let's have coffee, let's do lunch. That's probably not going to happen with you or me. But someone better wants to dine with you. Someone infinitely more amazing is the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's saying, man, if that's you, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come into him and dine with him and he with me. And... Uh, and he offers it. Listen, here, here's the scoop. All right. I see a lot of familiar faces. I see some unfamiliar faces. That doesn't matter. What matters is whether or not the Lord knows you to the, in the place of salvation. And if you, if you know beyond a shadow of doubt that when you die, you're going to go to heaven. Um, let me put it another way. If you die tonight, do you know that you're going to go to heaven? And if you say, yes, I know I'm going to heaven, I'm not going to ask you to shout it out right now, but I want you to think, why do you think you're going to go to heaven if you were to die tonight? If it is any reason other than I have repented, I've asked Christ to forgive me of my sins, if it's any other reason, you are not going to heaven. If it's, well, I go to church, that's what Laodicea did. I have money I've given to a church before, that's what Laodicea did. I have a nice car I drive. That's what Laodicea did, right? Um, I believe all roads lead to heaven. No, it's none of those things. Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except by me. Folks, I can't implore you enough to make sure that you know that you're going to go to heaven. No man is promised tomorrow. No woman is promised tomorrow. I believe this world is winding down fast, but apart from that, your world may wind down tonight. We do not know. We do not know.